This is an AMI podcast. I want to acknowledge that this podcast was produced and hosted on the unceded territories of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. I'd like to share with you something that I recently learned about the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, which is one of many groups of Coast Salish peoples living in the Pacific Northwest. This is colonially known as British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon. They're also known as the people of the inlet, and they speak a dialect of the downriver language, Hunkaminam. They are closely related to, but they are not politically or culturally tied to the Squamish nation or the Musqueam nation, but they may have some shared territories. If you're interested in learning about the lands that you may be settled on, please visit www.native-land.ca. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Accessing Art with Amy. I'm your host, Amy Amanti. My pronouns are she, her. So there's this art form called data, D-A-D-A. And I'd never heard of it before. In fact, I think I thought it was data, D-A-T-A. So I'd not heard of this until I met Lisa. And Lisa is such a unique artist, and she is using this art form to create universes within her home. And as I speak these words, I feel like my mind is in its own time warp. But I think we should let Lisa unpack for us what her artistic practice is. I think you're going to find this as interesting and fascinating as I do. So joining me all the way from her home in Ontario, please give a warm welcome to Lisa Anita Wagner. My name is Lisa Anita Wagner, and I am a meta-gender artist. I go by all pronouns, and I have an invisible disability called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you. Very excited to be here. I, I mean, there are so many questions that I could ask you because you're you're an artist that dabbles in a lot of different things. But let's start with your your artistic practice, which you call data, um, yes. because it comes from somewhere, right? And when I hear data, I think about computers and memory and stuff like that, which is not at all what we're talking about. Tell us what we're talking about. Yes, this is the data movement. So it's D A D A. And it's an art movement that was formed during the First World War in Germany as a negative reaction to the horrors of the war. And the art of the data movement was between 1916 and 1924. And it's satirical and nonsensical. And it's, yeah, irrational and silly. And um, I guess just a, a quick example, uh, early dataist Marcel Dussault painted a mustache on a postcard of the Mona Lisa. And that's a great example of showing irrelevance for established artists, as well as like a sense of humor. Ah, okay. I think I'm starting to understand what this data thing is. <laughs> uh, but it's, so what is it about the genre that is so interesting to you? And how did you find the genre knowing that it was way before your time? I had actually already been working as an artist for several years. And my close friend took me to a data exhibit in London, England and said, your work is quite data, isn't it? So I was actually introduced to the actual art movement after practicing for a little while. I'm not someone that studies stuff. I'm a real spoonie. So I really only have energy to kind of do my own work. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of told I was data. And then when I looked into it, it suited me perfectly. Partially, it's aligned with my actual heritage. I'm German and Slavic. And the actual art style, it's as if someone looked at my work and then made up an art style around it. It was an incredible fit with the main theme of it is that everyone's an artist. 
at the House of Dada, which is what I call my studio, everyone is president, everyone is an artist, and everyone is equal. So that's kind of a real main theme of it. And then taking horrible things like the First World War, which was a horrible experience, and then sort of flipping it on its head and, and rewriting it in silliness to reclaim it and to take the horror away. So what does that look like in practice um, for you specifically? The House of Data, right? You've got a studio. And I know that part of your artistic practice includes your lived experience of disability. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So I suppose, yeah, the whole practice that has turned into this data practice was originally because my disability completely takes over my life. I can be bedridden for months at a time. Sometimes I can't sit up for a while. And this practice actually started with me um, because I have complete cognitive dropout that can be really terrifying. I've always had bits of old German uh, things that are from my family. So part of the data practice is actually um, pieces of things that I have from my past, as well as costumes. And I would put on a costume or hold a prop kind of as a way to hold on through this cognitive dropout to try to remember who I am. So that was my first practice in using the props and the the costumes to sort of, yeah, remember who I am and why I want to be on earth. It was that fundamental to start. And you have spaces in your home universes that are dedicated to a couple of characters. And I thought that was so fascinating. So I really want you to tell our listeners about that. Thank you. I've worked in universes for a while. I realized maybe about a year ago that I work in about five distinct universes. And I had this impulse a few months ago to really lean into that. And two of the personas that um, are a big part of this universe are Mama and Papa Dada. And so I set up my, uh, I have three art spaces in the, in my home and I set up my downstairs art space as Mama Dada's studio. So she is a performance artist who started her practice in 1916 and she is very interested in making time space portals. So the room is set up with the items that she believes will open the time space portals and her costuming and all of her pieces to make that happen. And then Papa Dada right now has a smaller space. He is a male persona, kind of the opposite of Mama Dada on the gender spectrum, uh, really into sort of European maleness. And uh, I have a surface right now with all of Papa Dada's favorite items, and he rearranges them into found object sculptures. So that's the two spaces in the house right now. Oh, and Papa Dada has a magic corner. He does uh, magic tricks. Uh, And right now he has his magic suit set up on a dummy in the corner as well. Oh, interesting. Um, So maybe I could get you to, I I mean, you've given us a a really good idea of what these spaces are, but can you describe, pick one, Mama Dada or Papa Dada, what, what does it look like in the space? I mean, we're going into a room in your house and what does it look like? What would we see if we were in there? So when you open the door, Mama Dada is quite sure that white, the color white blankness will help get lift the veil to the other side. So when you open it up, I have a white rug covering a large piece of furniture. So it's sort of a white, I really love texture too. So it's a white rug you see. Then there's a large rounded mirror that's part of a scientific instrument from the 1920s. 
And I have also some old projection pieces from the 1920s and 30s. So Mama Dada believes that film has something to do with time travel. There's lots of old glasses. She believes glasses and shoes are also a portal to the other side. She's also interested. I've got a, a, a replica skull and some bottles of poison. She thinks death and that crossing over is also a, a way to get to the, the veil. So it's actually her space. And to get, go back to my illness, sometimes when I'm doing very poorly, I will just go stand in the space. Uh, it smells like bergamot. There's fake ice in there so that it feels colder. Um, and I have a fan. So I go in there to even just feel a little bit different sometimes. And it is the actual stuff that Mama Dada believes will help her time travel. I also have a large projector that I can turn on the colors and then make the portal open as well. Lisa can do that. Lisa can do that. What If we were to go through this portal, what what's on the other side? It lifts the veil and that goes anywhere, anywhere you choose off the space-time continuum into other universes I've created or any universe of your choice. Okay. I, like, I'm totally getting into this. So what, what is it, you know, so you've got these spaces which are artistic all on their own, but what do you what do you create in these spaces? Um, is there something that people can can see or watch or witness? Yes, I have probably about four hundred data videos created of both Mama Dada, Papa Dada, and their child, which is the Uber Marionette. So yeah, the actual artwork is uh, documentation of the experiences. Mama Dada also makes time-space portals uh, for about seven years. I showed them all across Toronto in different galleries and with different art parties, and folks could actually walk through them. Um, I'm going to be doing that kind of thing again. But the actual art practice is black and white photos and old-timey videos is the main output of the Dada universes. And I have done also some performances. Um, Mama Dada also plays a version of an old-timey um, keyboard. And I've been hired uh, to come to an art party and have Mama Dada play some polkas, for example. So um, yeah, so it's really, and also I do, I write poetry as my personas and also as Lisa, and I've been invited to read sometimes in persona as well. So Lisa, how does it feel for you when you get to, and I'm not even sure I have the right language to, to ask this question, but to like embody Mama Dada or Papa Dada or the Uber marionette, what I, how does that feel for you personally? I feel like I'm doing the exact right thing on earth. It's that powerful. And like I touched on a little earlier, sometimes if I'm having a really rough day, even yeah. just going into Mama Dada's studio with the bergamot smell, and I sometimes just slip on her shoes or slip on her glasses, and it transports me out of my pain and my nausea and my cognitive dropout. And for a moment, I know who I am. And it's interesting, it's authenticity through artifice, because I am not Mama Dada, but I am right. Mama Dada, and she yeah. shows me who I am. And, and can you tell us just a bit about the Uber marionette? In a way, with Mama and Papa Dada, I, I started out to create, recreate myself. So I, I did a film of them meeting, and I thought that they were going to have a small European child <laughs> that was me, <laughs> and I was going to essentially raise myself as an artist. And the Nuit Blanche that I was going to perform as Mama Dada, I actually had purchased a morph suit, which is, uh, it comes from the Japanese Zentai suit. And it basically all exposed skin is covered with a, a fabric. And I chose a white morph suit because Mama Dada always really thought white was great. Right. And I put that on for the Nuit Blanche and 
partially it's because I had was anxious and ill, but I felt so safe inside this suit. And that Nuit Blanche, it was October 14th, 2014, the Uber marionette was born. And Mama Dada and Papa Dada, in fact, had had a marionette as a child as opposed as opposed to a human. Hmm. I could probably spend a whole bunch of time talking to you about this this work, this data work that you do. But I also know that you are quite involved in other art forms. So I want to give some space for you to talk about some of the art stuff that you're doing. Sure. Well, I'm a, a filmmaker sort of foremost. That was my, I ran a film production company for a lot of my adult life before my illness kind of completely took over. And I feel like another one of my universes, they're all film-based because I feel like everything I do, even a live performance always has projections or some filmic element. I feel like that's sort of the way that I like to interact with the world. Liberation Through Dreaming is another one of these filmic-based universes, but me, Lisa, is sort of at the forefront of it. Right. Um, so for example, I did a, a live piece with the McLuhan Center um, and we did it on Zoom and I was taking the viewers through my universes on Zoom by using them, by using film pieces with me at the forefront. Um, and I was taking folks through my dreams and my nightmares live on Zoom. Um, so that was a way I feel like I could bring folks in, especially during pandemic when the live aspect wasn't working for a while. Right. How I, I, I'm curious about, okay, so you're taking folks through your dreams and your nightmares. How, do, how would I, how would I see your dreams and your nightmares? Are those like different, like videos that you've created? Yeah. Abstract well, videos? Partially. Yeah. So they're abstract videos. Sometimes you can see other versions of me in the videos themselves. For example, in this liberation through dreaming piece that I was talking about, when I talk about my nightmares, we used a pretty classic black and white spiral effect. And then I would look right into the camera, point my hands into the camera. So it looked like I was saying help. And then I would start spiraling backwards and I would physically move backwards. So when you were watching, you couldn't tell what was live and what was video, but anything that was me was actually live because I love the live moment more than anything else. Right. I mean, that's so familiar to many performance artists, right? The live moment is the thing. It's the drug, I think. It's the drug that you seek when you're when you're performing. So uh, I'm just I'm just wrapping my my mind around how this would have been experienced, you know, as an audience member through Zoom, because Zoom doesn't have these kind of capabilities. So obviously you are creating something uh, within an, an editorial um, space and then uh, I guess combining it through Zoom and live? Well, actually the first versions of it, I just, I just know how to jam. I just basically used zoom so incorrectly that I created the effects in zoom. <laughs> when I started working with my head of production, we did transfer it to OBS studios. So yep. we could call it like a television show, but I can actually do a live version right by myself, right in zoom, just yeah, doing it live. So that's something I like about my practice as well. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to connect with you offline about how to manipulate Zoom in this creative way because I'm trying to figure out exactly how to do that thing. And I think, gosh, this has such a limited capability. I tend to use most of my technology incorrectly and then they have unlimited capability. Oh, I love that. That's the, <laughs> yeah. There's a nugget. There's a takeaway nugget right there. Lisa, what's coming up next for you? I've actually decided in these universe studios that I've talked about, I'm taking between three months to eight months to immerse myself in my universes and let the universe tell me what is next. Mm -hmm. 
I've never done that before. I've been someone when I was running my production company as I have, I'd have five things going at once. And for me, everything right now is in these moments. It's in putting on the shoes of the personas, personas. It's being in there. I feel like I'm in the exact right place at the right time. So the next thing I'm going to do is I've got a new green screen set up. I'm going to film a new magic show video for Papa Dada is the very next thing. And then I'm going to go moment by moment and see where the universe itself takes me. And that's exciting. I've never taken the time to let my work unfold like that. Um, But after Intangible Adoration's Caravan, which was a three-year work extravaganza, I need this for my body and my soul. And I think my work is really going to flourish if I let it just be. Ah, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it sounds really interesting and really it sounds like one of the things that all creatives want to be able to to dedicate their time to right to just immerse yourself into your own artistic world artistic practice universe and explore and be there Uh, but then life gets in the way of all of that stuff so I really think that I'm excited to see what comes from that exploration yes and I will just add my illness has gotten in my way. I was so sick. I couldn't breathe. And honestly, I am sort of sitting up right now, but I can barely sit up. So it's everything I said is absolutely true. But one of the reasons is because my body was at past shutdown for the last like six months. So I just do want to add that in for the truth of the situation. Yeah. Um, But, but it is, yeah, but I've chosen, I turned down all my teaching contracts. I've turned everything else down a hundred percent. I realized that the most important thing is my health, myself and my, and my art. Yeah. And I think that, that, uh, the self-care piece, right. Is a really important piece to acknowledge in there. So, uh, thank you for reminding us of the importance of that. I think you had briefly mentioned the caravan and I wonder if you want to take a few minutes to just share with us a bit about the caravan. Yes. So there's two more caravan shows left in September, which is so exciting. And the the from the universes I'd mentioned, so this show, we said that one of Mama Dada's portals that you've heard a little bit about, mm-hmm. that the icon, which is an which is an one of the Uber Uber Marionette characters, got lost through one of Mama Dada's portals. And then the character of the Barker, which is played by Yusuf Kudura has become obsessed with getting the the icon back through the time-space portal. So Intangible Adoration's Caravan is a show by Other Hearts Collective, and it's their show. It's a circus show with one of my films in the middle based on their characters trying to get the icon back home through one of Mama Dada's space portals. And uh, Aaron Ball is featured in the show. I know that you've had Aaron on this podcast as well. We have indeed. Good friend of the podcast. Yep. And uh, yeah, Aaron, Yusef Kadura, Sylvain Mercedes is playing the icon because I was not well enough to perform myself this year. And Hari Thomas uh, is the other performer. Let's talk about the caravan because it's actually a caravan. Yes. It's a physical caravan. I was really excited to deliver art in an unusual way. So somebody might just be in the park and then a caravan rolls in and the caravan characters come out and start to, yeah, tell a story. And there's some aerial and then there's this film about the icon. And then does the space time portal open? You have to wait and see. Oh, it sounds really exciting. Um, the, this idea of caravan stuff, especially during the pandemic, was, I think, changed a lot of how we experience art. Uh, and even outdoor festivals changed a lot 
in terms of how we of how we experienced art, which was such a great thing because it was a way of keeping art alive when traditional curtains were down. And I think that was part of the success of Caravan. I was designing it to go to be built in a gallery right when pandemic hit and mm-hmm. we decided to take it on the road. And I think that, yeah, that was a really, I think that flexibility worked and I'm going to continue to always have my work to be taken on the road in the same way. I really like it. It can be, yeah, it can go into unexpected places. It sounds to me like you also have a a spirit for collaboration in some way. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm so in love with my collaborations and often even with my interns, I'll end up collaborating with them. I really, yeah, I value them so much. I, you're, so now you're talking about your interns. I'm wondering if this is about the teaching that you just said that you turned down for, you know. Oh, no, I just have film interns, actually. Uh, I ah. have between two and eight a year, all through my illness even. I constantly have interns and some of them don't leave. <laughs> I have some folks that just <laughs> stayed for 20 years. So yeah, I think, and this is a good example. I collaborate. I really bring them in and work with them. And then yeah. creatives, they, they never, this is, and the best way, they never leave. They, they, yeah, they yeah. keep coming back. So I've had uh, 32 interns come through my production right now, uh, my production company. And right now I have two. I have a social media intern and a film intern. Awesome. awesome. So no, teaching is separate. I, I teach workshops uh, and I do um, creative consultation for different organizations, but I've, I've, that's what I've let go. My friend, you are trailblazing in the most authentic way possible and the mo- like the most authentic way the term is designed for. You're leading the charge. And I think it's so wonderful because there are many performers with disabilities, many folks just that live with disability that, that haven't even thought about arts and are yeah. thinking, well, how would I? And I wonder if there's a piece of advice that you would want to leave with folks who are just on the fence about how they get involved in some kind of artistic practice when they feel like you know, there are so many barriers against them. I think everybody is born an artist until the world knocks it out of you. Yeah. 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 And actually I did, I did a CBC interview about that. So I love that that's really truly out there. And also I will just share because of my illness, like it sounds like I I have all this energy. I have the most minute amounts of energy. So I also do everything in bite-sized chunks, like really Mm -hmm. tiny chunks. So I really recommend for folks, if you're interested in any, and just follow what feels good, what's interesting. If you're like, oh, I like paints or fabrics, or I'd like to perform or anything like that, I would say go towards it in the tiniest steps possible. So it doesn't feel overwhelming. Some days I just open my studio door and take a whiff and that's a practice day. Some days I go in and do two minutes of work. That's a practice day. So I think that's super important for spoonies folks and even healthy folks. Like sometimes I'll be doing consultations for able-bodied young artists and I would say, take it slow, take it small, slow it down. I really think that's the way for everybody. The, the whole spoon theory that you've identified a couple of times, spoonies, spoon theory. I know what this means. And I think to myself, oh gosh, we've heard it twice now. People aren't going to know what this means. So now I'm going to just ask you to unpack a little bit about spoon theory so that folks can understand Absolutely. what you're talking about. I didn't about. even notice that I said that. Thank you for I do, I do the same thing all the time because it's part of my my vernacular, right? Yes. It came from some from a feminist theory originally, I believe, but it's to say when folks have a kind of illness like mine, when you truly have a few spoonfuls of energy, and it was a way to explain that. Uh, I'm not being super eloquent about it now, but essentially if you have four spoonfuls of energy and you use five, you have to take one away from tomorrow. So maybe you can't get out of bed or you can't make your own lunch the next day if you take an extra spoon the day before. So it was a way to explain that to folks that had no concept of that small amount of energy available to some folks. 
Mm, I totally get that as I too live with a, a chronic illness that requires me to count my spoons carefully and to allocate them in very specific ways so that I can continue to have spoons moving forward. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that, uh, Lisa. Oh, Lisa, uh, I'm here in our mixed bag sound. Are you up for a little mixed bag? I am. All right. I'm going to throw a couple of random questions at you, Lisa. What is your least favorite household chore? Cleaning my hair out of the drain. <laughs> okay. Not had that. I, I expected maybe toilets or floors, but that's a very unique hate. My <laughs> hair is down to my waist, so it collects a lot of stuff down the drains. The next one is, if you were stuck on a desert island for the rest of your life, what's the one food you would bring with you? Sushi. Sushi. Anything particular? Salmon sushi. Salmon sushi. All right. Uh, and the last one I have for you, Lisa, is really about artists that inspire you. So a little bit less of a mixed bag, but I want to know who inspires your work and who we should check out. Lisa's, Lisa's recommendations. I really love Cindy Sherman, who is a photographer that creates universes. I also really love Mark Hogenkamp, who is a survivor who was cut off from trauma therapy and created the most amazing art practice to save cool. himself. And then Stephanie Avery is a local Toronto artist who is a painter who creates universes inside fashion magazine advertising. Oh, that sounds so fascinating. I'm going to have to check out a couple of those folks. That sounds really interesting. But if folks want to check out you, Lisa, and your work and how to connect with you, where would they find you on the WWW? The best place to find out about me is MightyBraveProductions.com, my production company website. And then I have an artist website, Lisa Anita Wegner, and that is L-I-S-A-A-N-I-T-A-W-E-G-N-E-R. And those both lead to my socials and to other ways to connect with me online. Awesome. 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 Thank you, my friend. I thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your artistic mediums, your artistic practice and about your lived experience. I think there's a lot that we can learn, um, about artists and their relationship to the disability experience through just listening to what you have to offer on this platform. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And before we all jet off, I want to share with you the quote of the day by Vincent van Gogh. There is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. Thanks for listening to Accessing Art with Amy. This podcast is produced by me, Amy Amanti. The technical production is done by Jacob Shymansky. And the manager of AMI Audio is Andy Frank. If you'd like to share any feedback with us at all, we would absolutely love to hear that. Here's how you can reach us. By phone at 1-866-509-4545. Or you can pop us an email at feedback at ami.ca. I want to give a big thanks again to my guest today, Lisa Anita Wagner. Keep exploring. See you next time. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.